Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hi, this is Sarah Hatch, and I am excited to sit down with Jennifer Ann Mackley, Wilford Woodruff expert and aficionado and author of Wilford Woodruff's Witness, The Development of Temple Doctrine. Sister Mackley was trained as a temple worker 27 years ago and has served in the Provo, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Seattle, and Salt Lake temples. She began her research into the development of LDS temple doctrine in 1997 and published Wilford Woodruff's Witness in 2014. Her work has been quoted by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Laurel Thatcher Ulrich in A House Full of Females. Jennifer is an attorney and lives in Seattle, where she and her husband are raising their three children. Welcome. Thank you very much, sir. I'd like to first start with Wilford Woodruff, as his name is in the title. Why Wilford Woodruff's Witness? That's a great question. Do you want the long version or the short version? Oh, the long version. (laughs) It is a story that began with my mother, and she's the one that introduced me to his experience in the St. George Temple, which is, I guess, famous or notorious story. I was curious about the women because there have been books and articles written about the men, the eminent men that he describes, the Founding Fathers are well-known, but there's also been a book written about the eminent men. Nobody had written one about the women. So I wanted to learn more about them and not write a book, just learn more about them. And it was starting to study those women that I started to ask why Wilfred Woodruff. So it became more an understanding of the history to put that experience into context In doing that, I had read everyone else's writings and interpretations and found out that they were wrong because the women didn't appear to Wilfred Woodruff. To discover what really happened, I had to go to the source. As an attorney, for me, the primary source is the best, not the hearsay or the interpretation, and not just the primary source, but a firsthand witness contemporaneous to the experience. So I began reading Wilfred Woodruff's journals, then discovered that he'd given over 3,200 discourses in the course of his church service and wrote more than 11,000 letters. The theme through it all was the salvation of his family, of every person on the earth. That was the focus. And I'd always heard about him as a great missionary and all the years that he'd spent and his devotion to missionary work for the living, but for him, it was to every living soul, which meant on both sides of the veil. When I initially began writing down what I had learned as I researched, and then the first publisher approached me to publish it as a book, their proposal was, can we just take Wilford Woodruff out of it and just stick to the facts, the doctrine? And I had to regrettably decline their offer (laughs) to publish because it has to be his story. He was the witness from the beginning to the end, and it wasn't just because he outlived Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, but because he was instrumental in the development, in the whole course of events that occurred, and he brought it full circle to the end. I have to say, the early life of Wilford was fascinating to me, from how his childhood near-death experiences shaped his faith, to him living to 90 and serving as the prophet the last 10 years of his life. What are some of your favorite fun facts or stories regarding his life? 
He is a fascinating man, and I'm sure that if I studied John Taylor or Brigham Young for 15 years, I would appreciate them as well. But after having said that, (laughs) Wilford Woodruff was unique to me, not just because of the crazy things that happened in his life. He broke almost every bone in his body and yet lived to be 90 without a limp. And he was a worker. Of course, he had to be an administrator as well, but he never stopped working. He was in his 70s before one of his grandsons could out hoe a row in the garden. He was sad about that because he was a miller growing up and worked hard at that, but he was also a horticulturist and a gardener and he had orchards. And to me, the fascinating part of his life was more, I mean, he became an individual more than just a prophet. And I I shouldn't say just a prophet, but he's a full person. I mean, to me, like a Renaissance man, the things that made me laugh in reading his journals were things like when he was building his house in Nauvoo, of course, they had to hand kiln the bricks. And he said, I flung over 5,000 bricks today and nearly melted myself. (laughs) And he would do that over and over again when he would just put his all into something and the next day say, you know, I can't even walk because I worked so hard yesterday. It didn't stop. It never stopped. I mean, even Queen Victoria's gardener contacted him for advice. And I don't even know how they would know who he was. When we look to the history of Temple Doctrine, I was surprised at how incremental the revelations were. In Wilford Woodruff's words, he talked about the saints acting upon the light that they had. There was some trial and error involved, though. And there were some things that kind of seem odd and foreign to us now. What are some of those things? You're right. When we talk about line upon line and precept upon precept, it wasn't this grand staircase where one step led to the next and you could see the top of it and and this goal that you were trying to reach. I kind of think of it like a puzzle. They were given pieces, but they had no, like we have the box with the picture on it. We know what we're putting together. They had no idea. And it took such incredible faith to take the step into the darkness of asking the question, first of all, and then acting upon the answer. You can see God's wisdom in not showing the whole puzzle (laughs) because it would have been overwhelming. I mean, a daunting task that would have been so discouraging or so unbelievably complex that it had to be one step at a time. Some of the things that people are surprised at when they study church history are things like rebaptism. We think of baptism as this similar experience, this moment in our lives, you know, where we make this covenant and we're so young and yet, you know, it's part of the process and and we understand that you take this step and you don't have to know everything, but you know enough to know that you can promise to God that you're going to do your best. Wilford Woodruff was rebaptized nine times and it wasn't, I mean, we think of today rebaptism as only if you're excommunicated and you're rebaptized to renew those covenants and start over again. But for them, it was if they moved, if they were recommitting themselves to the gospel, maybe it was before they went to the temple for the first time. That's not something we do today. That's a surprise to most people. There were other ordinances that we are only promised today, and they actually received. People are concerned about that as if they're missing out on something. Polygamy is one that I'm sure many of us personally are grateful we don't have to engage in. But still, that was something that came and went. And those are all, to me, not necessarily trial and error, but were a part of the process. And the process was like Joseph Smith to ask the question, how do we baptize? And then the priest is restored. They continued to ask those questions. And once they had an answer to something like, how do those who were born 
and died before the gospel was restored, how would they be baptized? And you find out about proxy baptism. But the next step was, yes, we do that, but how do we do it in an orderly fashion? Then the next revelation comes about witnesses and recording it. And then the next step is when you receive the endowment and the sealing that men perform the baptism for men. So when they go to the temple, they can go through you know, the ordination and the endowment and the sealing. So each step was a step in the right direction, but it was not a straight line. And the detours, in my mind, were necessary because they had to have time to be baptized themselves and then to be ordained to the priesthood and take that to the world and bring those converts back. So they had the mass of people to build a temple and then to be able to be proxies for others. And then when the endowment was revealed and then the sealing ordinances were revealed to know we have those who have those ordinances that understand them, that can administer them, and we have people to even be sealed too. There had to have enough time passed that they had multiple generations in the church. Could you give one example of how the ordinance may have changed from how they first did it to how we observe it? I think baptism for the dead is a good example. To explain how it was received to me is an amazing story. And of course, every example I give has to be Wilfred Woodruff because that's the one I know. But Wilfred Woodruff heard about baptism for the dead from his wife. So when you think about 1840 and Joseph Smith giving a a conference address or a Sunday discourse, those in the audience were those who had to absorb this new information. Every one of these ordinances were revelations. I mean, we look back with this perspective of maybe some people think it was like the Ten Commandments and carved in stone and everything was laid out and they could just follow this script. But that was hearing it for the first time. And when Phoebe wrote to Wilfred and told him, she called it strong meat. So this was radical. And truly, baptism for the dead changed the church and made it unlike any other then and unlike any other now. And it was only the beginning. After this news was received by the saints, they were thrilled because, like Wilfred Woodruff, they had been introduced to the gospel and wanted to share it with everybody they could. For Wilfred Rudolph, the first thought that he had was his own mother, who had died when he was one and a half years old. To think that he could do something for her, even though she wasn't there to receive it, was the most thrilling thing that he'd ever heard. And then there was a new one and another one. But those saints acted immediately. And the first one to walk in the river, she did it not with Joseph Smith there. He wasn't the one that performed the baptism. And they went to Joseph Smith afterwards, explained what they'd done, and he said, great, sounds good. There was no manual. There was no instruction. And so they started to perform the baptisms in the Mississippi River. And for Joseph Smith, the excitement was palpable and wonderful. But then it was, we need to make sure these are done correctly. So if everybody's doing them in every river and stream, we need to go back and make sure that this is what the Lord wants. And the revelation was... You need to do it in a special place, and that special place needs to be the temple. And that was their motivation for building the temple. All baptisms were stopped until the font was ready. So they finished the basement, finished the font, and started doing it. And women were being baptized for men, men for women. It wasn't, again, 
detailed instructions. So then it was the witnesses had to be there to make sure that the instructions were being followed. They had never done this before. I can't speak for the saints in the 1840s, but even today things are changing and it's hard to reconcile the perfect principles with continuing revelation even. And yet we believe in that and we believe that God will give us what we need when we need it. They kept asking and we still have to do the same because I don't think we've got it all yet. So <laughs> There were a few elements that were new to me, one being rebaptism, which we touched on, and the other being priesthood adoption. Could you speak on priesthood adoption a bit? Priesthood adoption, I think, is the best example of how things had to change. Maybe I can best explain it by, I don't know, imagining that you're a convert, like so many who came alone. You were disowned by your family, or they didn't gather with the saints, or maybe you were both converted, your husband and wife, and yet one of you decides not to be as committed as the other. So when the endowment's introduced, that's something you can do as an individual without any family. The sealing ordinance is introduced, and you can't do that by yourself. (laughs) So the idea that you want to be a part of that and be sealed into the family of God, that's what they faced. Those individuals who either didn't have a spouse to be sealed to or parents to be sealed to in the church. So the sealing had to take place in the temple And the idea was that it was a spiritual ceiling, not a physical ceiling, not a family ceiling or biological ceiling as we think of today. But if you could choose to be sealed to somebody, you would want to be sealed to the most righteous person you could be sealed to because your eternal life depended on that connection, that righteousness. So they would choose the prophet, Joseph Smith, or they would choose one of the apostles, Heber C. Kimball or Brigham Young. It was called priesthood adoption because you were being adopted into their priesthood line. And that was the connection back to God. So the idea that Joseph Smith bridged the gap of the apostasy and the priesthood that it started with God, with Adam, up until Jesus Christ and his apostles, we had to get past that somehow to make that connection. And that was how you do it, through the priesthood. We now think of sealing as you find out who your father and grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-grandparents and and we connect that way and we can do that now. But at that point, they only had one choice and that was to find someone who was righteous that they could join with. That started in 1846 in the Nauvoo Temple and continued until Wilfred Woodruff's revelation was received in 1894. The understanding by then was that there were multiple generations, members of the church that could be sealed to, and that you could be sealed to your own biological family or adopted family in the case of those who joined a family and were not biological as my daughter. They had been baptized by proxy. They had had endowments by proxy, and they could now be sealed by proxy. And so multi-generational sealings didn't begin until the 1890s. And that, in my research, was a surprise to me because we look at it now and we think, of course, that's what you do. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't make any sense any other way, but at the time they didn't have that option. And the question occurred in the 1890s as it does to people today, well, what do you do about all those ceilings? And the answer is nothing. It didn't hurt them to be sealed into, adopted into a priesthood line of authority. 
and those connections were made. But once they could be connected to their own biological family, they were, including Wilfred Woodruff. And he said, we are to honor our parents and we honor them by believing that they will accept the gospel because people were afraid if they were sealed to their parents who had said, I want nothing to do with the church, you know, you're disowned from the family for joining it, that they wouldn't accept the gospel in the spirit world. And Wilford would have said, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and trust that they will. Our current day understanding of sealings is quite different, especially the saints' experience when it comes to being sealed to, as we see our eternal companion. Would you speak to some of those differences, how we view it now? versus how they experienced it? Sealing as a concept, even in the church in Kirtland, was completely different than we have now. It was limited. Sealing meant that you were recognizing a bond. The sealing power, I mean, in Matthew, the sealing power is the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And we understand the phrase, what is bound on earth is bound in heaven. Sealing changed from sealing an ordinance, like sealing a blessing, which we still do, or sealing into eternal life. So those are things that occurred before Elijah's return of the keys to Joseph Smith, before that sealing was understood to be something more. So sealing an ordinance means that that ordinance is going to be recognized by God. And when sealing of individuals was introduced Initially, it was understood the same way. It was simply sealing of the marriage covenant in a non-religious ceremony, or I guess a non-LDS ceremony. You still make that promise to each other. And so initially, it was just sealing that promise so that God would recognize the promise that a couple had made to each other. But again, Wilford Woodruff was the first one to record the sealing of an individual, the man and wife, the husband and wife, together to each other, And that's an understanding that didn't occur until the 1840s. The idea that you seal one to another and then you seal children to parents, that changed everything. It wasn't just God is recognizing the promise that you've made, but you're actually bound together for life and for eternity. Some of the surprising things too were when Joseph Smith talked about baptism for the dead as the binding there had to be something that bound us together. And you read that in the Doctrine and Covenants and you think, well, of course, that's the sealing power of Elijah. The sealing ordinance hadn't been introduced yet. So when he said that's how we're bound together, it was because baptism meant that we were baptized as brothers and sisters, as children of God, and we were part of his family. So of course we were bound together, but he had no idea that there were better things coming. So <laughs> we look back and can see it now, but It's an amazing evolution of understanding and of blessings that they understood as a radical shift in their own thinking and and how things would work. When we look to the sequence of revelations and the introduction of different temple doctrines, would you speak to priesthood authority and the importance of the keys with the ordinances? Talking about the importance of the priesthood, Wilfred Woodruff is a perfect example of someone who, he was a scriptorian. He studied the scriptures for years of growing up seeking what he'd found in the scriptures, and he hadn't found it. He hadn't found a church that believed in all those New Testament 
doctrines and practices. He was a true believer in their fruits, ye shall know them. So he and his brother, Asman, were seeking together. He'd been baptized as an infant, but not by immersion. So his first quest was to find somebody who could baptize him by immersion. When he went to the minister, he actually wrote him and said, will you do this? And the minister said, are you joining the church? That's great. And he said, no, I just need to be baptized by immersion. So the minister was hesitant to do so. And Wilford said, are you going to deny me this ordinance? And he's, okay, I'll, I'll do this. But then when he heard the gospel for the first time, he understood that he needed to be baptized by immersion by the proper authority. And that was something that he recognized from the scriptures. He wanted to do what Christ had done, and Christ had found someone with authority. It was a process for him in that regard, and the reason that he'd been baptized so many times. So for him, he finally felt like he had done it the right way with the right person, and that was something that he repeated and taught for the rest of his life. What are some things we can be cognizant of regarding historical context and perspective when we look to the development of temple doctrine? For me, this is the reason I wrote the book and perhaps why I am so passionate about sharing it with firesides and and podcasts and continuing to try to draw people into the context. I have children and they don't ask me questions. They go to Google. I have discussed this with people in the church historian's office and stake presidents and even apostles to say, if we don't talk about this, they're going to find the information out of context. Everything's on the internet. To put this into perspective, just like I did, you know, with Wilfred Woodruff's experience in the St. George Temple, that was a moment in church history that a lot of people are familiar with. But taking out of context, it's an odd story. People write on the internet about it all the time because the founding fathers are Mormon now. I mean, that's how they look at it, which is not what we believe. We believe that everybody needs the opportunity to choose. And Wilfred Woodruff had come to the point where, I mean, he said, I'd been so focused on my own family, I didn't even think about expanding this. But it was a revelation because, you know, he learned that it's okay for us to help each other, that we don't just have to focus on our own biological connections. Putting these things into context, to me, is vital to understanding church history and the truly remarkable revelations that occurred. And if we don't teach that, if we don't talk to our kids about that, if we don't put these things into context, then they are odd. They are strange. They are parts of history that don't make sense. I was surprised when I was doing my research, and I was just doing it out of curiosity for myself, that there wasn't a book out there that put it all in one place that you could just read it because so many focus on Nauvoo or Kirtland or, or one ordinance. And so for me, it was that contextual understanding that makes sense. And I think it's critical to do that and help ourselves <laughs> understand why things happened the way they did and that it wasn't perfect and that they weren't perfect and we certainly aren't. But also, Wilfred Woodruff, like Joseph Smith, each revelation, they said, you don't have to trust me. In fact, don't trust me. Don't take my word for it. But go to God yourself, get confirmation for what's happening, and then you're comfortable with continuing revelation. 
Although very integral to Wilfred Woodruff's life, I think polygamy is probably the least interesting. When we look to his family, the amazing and interesting thing is his desire to do family history work and then his revelations to go onward. What are some of your stories with the sheer amount of work that he did that you found interesting? You're right that his desire from the moment he was baptized was how to share this amazing restored gospel with his family. He wrote letters to his siblings, to his parents, to his in-laws, to his extended relatives to basically beg them to join the church and share his testimony with them. And the years that he spent on missions doing that, his focus was on his entire family. And that meant those living and those who had already passed on. He spent years doing the genealogical research, contacting everybody he knew, ordering books to find out their names. So when the St. George Temple was built, that was the first temple where every ordinance was performed for both the living and the dead. Finally, he was able to do the endowments and the sealings by proxy for his relatives. But at that point in the 1870s, he had over 3,000 names that he'd prepared And between the Nauvoo Temple and the St. George Temple, although they had the endowment house, it was only for the living. And although they were doing ceilings, it was just couples. It was not families. Children were not sealed to their parents until the St. George Temple was built. That's why he was so focused, and that's why he went to God to say, I've got over 3,000 names. There's men and women. I can't do this myself. How do I accomplish this, what you want me to do? And the answer was, it's okay to get help. And we think about that now and how we go to the temple and take any name. But back then it was an individual responsibility. I found the material in this book timely. I've been endowed for a year now and I didn't know much of the history that you wrote about. As I read and began better understanding the story of how doctrine developed, I did gain additional context to the sacred ordinances in the temple. Because the temple is so sacred to our faith, we often hesitate to be specific regarding ordinances in the temple. How do you think learning more about the development of temple doctrine can help those preparing to go to the temple or those newly endowed? That's a great question. It is something that we need to talk about so that it's understood in context. And we do hesitate because every person who goes to the temple understands the sacred nature of it. It's not something we're supposed to reveal in a sense for several reasons. One is to have the experience of the temple, to receive the endowment, is to be a spiritual experience. And so if it's something that's talked about casually or discussed in a disrespectful way or shared with those who would treat it disrespectfully or take it out of context, those are all things you need to be concerned about. But for me, it is something we don't talk about enough. I just had a conversation with somebody a couple days ago about Boyd K. Packer's book, The Holy Temple. That's kind of the, the line that's drawn to say, if he talked about it, we can talk about it. But I think you can discuss in the temple with those who are there, but that doesn't mean you don't talk about it in Family Home Evening. It doesn't mean you don't talk about it in Sunday school. It doesn't mean you can't share it with your children. Read the book of Abraham and talk about those things that you're going to hear again in the temple. The preparation is more than spiritual. 
you're supposed to understand it in your heart and your mind. And that means doing a little homework. And the divine, incredible mercy of Heavenly Father to say, no one's going to understand it the first time. And we need to be able to go back. We go for ourselves the first time. We go for someone else after that. And yet we benefit every time we go. My children have grown up with Wilfred Woodruff (laughs) and discussions about the temple. I don't think they're going to be surprised when they get there. And I don't think anybody should or anybody needs to be. So yes, we need to discuss it respectfully. But most of all, we need to discuss it. To conclude, would you sum up some of the most significant takeaways you've had from better understanding the development and the history of temple doctrine? I have been asked many times what I learned in my research. It's hard to say in 15 years of reading and amassing 27,000 documents, the most significant thing or personal thing that I learned was that it's a process that we all go through. The questions and the answers are available to all of us. We all have access to that revelation and to God, and it's personal. So to know that I have the same access, that everyone has the same access to that process, and that we can trust that process was the first and most significant personal thing I learned. But the second was that everything we do, every ordinance we perform, every lesson we teach is to help us return to God that we will behold his face at some point, whether we're ready or not. And the idea of the gospel is to prepare us for that. And initially, they hoped it would occur physically, right then and right there. And if we understand that it will eventually occur for all of us, it will eventually occur for all of us, then we know that every day is preparation for that moment in our lives, whether in the flesh or the spirit, that we will see God. What we can do to prepare for that is what we do to prepare to go to the temple. And if that occurs for us in this lifetime, then we are as blessed as Joseph Smith was. If not, then we have a little more time to prepare. But they lived that every day. I learned a third lesson about just the faith to know that you can take a step and the light that you gain as you draw closer to God will illuminate the next one. If we truly believe that, then we'll keep moving forward. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sarah. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.